Good morning, church. It is good to be with you today. Look forward to this. I look forward to us talking together and us worshiping together and us going into the scriptures together. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to worship you. We thank you for um, what binds us together, and that's the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're thankful that uh, we get to come and bring our heartaches, and we get to bring our joys, and we get to bring everything that we are, and we lay them uh, at your feet. And we can trust you with that, and we know that your love uh, continues and never ends and endures, and that your mercy is new every morning, and that... Uh, your desire to, uh, for us to draw close to you uh, is great, and our desire for that is great as well. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time this morning, that the songs that we sing would come from hearts of joy uh, and hearts of trust in you, and uh, that the words we say this morning, Lord, I ask that you would uh, guide them, that your Holy Spirit would be present, and uh, that the good news uh, would penetrate the hearts of every single one of us. Lord, we also ask that you be with the other congregations here in this town. And in particular, Lord, uh, we ask that you be with Global Methodist Church and their new pastor, Frank Oakman, who has come uh, to lead it. Lord, we ask that uh, you would give him peace as he seeks to uh, start a new ministry, uh, that you would give him comfort, that you would give him words to say that are true and right and filled with your gospel message. And through that, people's, uh, people's lives are changed. People come to be reconciled to you. Those that are hurting uh, and enslaved by sin will come to be set free. Lord, we ask that you bless that church and the work that they do here in this town. Guide them uh, and give them your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in John 8. And as you heard our, our friend Anderson read this morning, uh, I want to give you a little context about this one. If you've got your uh, journal with us, or if you've got your regular Bible, or if you're online and looking at it, one of the things that you're going to notice is there is a note with this particular part of Scripture. Uh, in nearly every translation that you have, it will say something along the lines of, the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. So we want to talk about that for just a minute because I want you to feel comfortable in uh, what we're about to discuss here. Uh, this really had to do with uh, the number of copies that are found of the book of John. So you need to know that there's not just one copy that was found. There are manuscripts of the, the book of John that have been written and that have been copied down uh, over time, and there's a lot of them. And what they found is that the earliest ones don't always have this uh, story in it. But the vast majority of the ones that they found do have this story in it. So it led to a lot of debates with scholars as to go, does this belong here? Does it not belong here? And we want you to know that these are people that uh, have looked at all the original manuscripts and have gone through many of them, and they've compared them and where they've come from. And you're going to find out that nearly every translation has decided to go ahead and include this in the scriptures, but to put that note so that you know. This is not in the earliest ones, but this is in nearly all of them. Um, one of the other things that I think is really important with this is not just the idea of timing and the number, but also one of the things that happens with this is to go, does this seem in keeping with the teachings of Jesus? Sometimes what would happen is they would find some writings and they go and you compare this and you go, this doesn't seem to be in keeping with who Jesus was. And I also think that this, in a lot of ways, uh, is very much in keeping with who Jesus is. 
in what Jesus' mission was and the way that he taught and the things that he did. And I think it's a very valuable story for us, and I think it's worth us looking at and taking confidence in the fact that, boy, this really does sound like something that Jesus did. And it sounds very important to what's going on. So I just want to remind you through this, experts, a lot of folks, they've decided we're going to include this in the Bible. We think that this sounds like something Jesus would have done, and we see this in multiple manuscripts. And more than anything, we want you to feel comfortable in the scholarship that goes into our canon and to our Bible. This is a, a lot of folks that have looked at this and a lot of people that have uh, examined all of these things. And when they put this together, we can have confidence that these are the stories of uh, what Jesus actually did. So uh, if we can, we're going to begin with this one. Uh, you heard the story. It's a famous story. Uh, you probably know it from before. I think that sometimes we miss some of the point that's in here. So I want to give you a little context. And I want to tell you that I think this is a very important story because it means a lot. Um, and I think it should transform us and it should change our hearts in a lot of ways. Number one, let me give you a little context. So Jesus has been coming into the temple in Jerusalem. He was there for a uh, festival, and it says that he came back, and he's teaching, and he's starting to gather a large crowd. As a matter of fact, Scripture says uh, in this verse here that they all came to listen to him. So it's talking about there's a lot of people that are coming to listen to the teachings of Jesus. And you need to know that these are going to be people from all sorts of backgrounds, and they're coming to hear what Jesus has to say, and people are starting to see there's something about this man, and there's something about the teachings that he has. In addition to that is in the middle of all of this where you have all these religious people and you have people that are seeking to hear the teachings of Jesus, then a, a group of religious leaders, it says Pharisees and scribes come in and they bring this woman and they pretty much cast her before Jesus and say, this woman's been caught in a sin. Now, what do you say we're supposed to do with her? And one of the things they do is they quote from the Old Testament. And they said, Moses says she's supposed to die and we want to know what you have to say about this. And so she's right there in the center of this group of religious people waiting to stand for some sort of judgment. And really what's happened here is you have this group of people and they've come before Jesus and you can tell that it's part of a, a trap they're trying to set and they're asking him to draw a line in the sand. Jesus, we want to know. Here she is. You have these people that are considered sinners that you're hanging out with and you go and you talk to them and you don't seem to have any sort of problem spending time with them and they're starting to come to you while at the same time you seem to really respect the Torah and the scriptures. And so we have found this spot where these are in conflict with one another. So we have brought this woman and we say, draw a line in the sand. Where do you stand? We want to know. Where are you on this? Do you stand for scripture? Do you stand for Torah? Do you believe it? You think these are the words of God. You've been spending time with these people who are doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. These people considered sinners. They're coming to you, but this is a clear issue on which we want a ruling. Where are you? Will you join in our condemnation of what is wrong? And what's amazing is that this conversation turns to an issue. Where do you stand on adultery? And where do you stand on the scripture? Meanwhile, what you've got is a woman who's humiliated and in the middle of uh, this group of people. And it's an amazing thing what happens to people when they become the focal point of an issue. It's how quickly she went from a private person to a very publicly humiliated person. That you have this lady, and all of a sudden it's the worst version of herself that is placed before this court of public opinion in front of all of these people. And she's not addressed in any way. They ignore her completely as they discuss life and death for her. 
She's not addressed in any way. She's not even mentioned. Instead, she's really reduced to her sin. She represents a certain sin. She represents adultery and what adultery deserves. And they're talking about this, and she's become this prop for people to position themselves and to gain power or to find out where power lies. She quickly becomes a woman who doesn't have a name, a family. She doesn't have a story, and she doesn't appear to have a soul from the way she's being treated. She's now a way to make a point. She's a prop. She's bait in a trap and an issue. And so she stands there in shame as they demand that Jesus draw a line in the sand about her sin. We want an answer, and you owe us one. Now, here's the interesting thing is of all people, Jesus can draw this line in the sand. He has the authority to do it. Really, of anybody in the world, this is a guy who gets to draw a line in the sand and go, this is okay and this is not. Nobody else has the ability to do this like he does. He has the right to. And you need to understand, too, for his ministry and what he's doing, he probably has a lot to gain by condemning her. There's a few things that could come. One is he could show his commitment to the Scriptures and Torah if he would do that. He can show that he's serious about sin and that he doesn't take it lightly. He can make sure that no one thinks that he goes easy on adultery or that he thinks that he's, uh, or to think that he's wishy-washy on these thoughts. He can show that he values the sanctity of marriage. He can show that he has sound doctrine and that he values the truth and that's where he stands. All of these things could come to him if he would just condemn her there at that place. Like most things that happen in John and most of the stories that we have, he takes something that's physical and he takes something that's fleshly and he's going to turn it into something about spirit and about truth. He's going, you're missing the point on what's happening here. They want to come and say, well, here she is. It's a physical person who's done a physical sin and we want a physical reaction and you tell us what she deserves and what we should do to her body-wise. What should happen? And he's going, you're missing the point in what's happening here. This is a spiritual issue. It's much bigger than what you think is happening. As a matter of fact, they even disagree on what's at stake here, I would say. The group that has brought her and Jesus himself, they would say what hangs in the balance is good doctrine, correct teaching, obedience. That's what hangs in the doctrine. That's what we're arguing about, and that's what we're talking about. It's about being right it's about holding up what is good and condemning what is wrong and following the law. And that's what's at stake. And Jesus is going, no, it's not. This is a person. She has a soul. She's somebody that I came for. This is why I'm here. Her physical life, her spiritual life, and her soul hang in the balance. This is about more than obedience. This is about more than just being right. So he changes the question. And he doesn't agree to answer it in the way that they say. Moses says she deserves stoning. What do you say? Let me tell you a minute about uh, what it looked like to have somebody uh, being stoned in the first century. Typically what would happen is if someone was caught in a sin in that way, that they would bind them by the hands and the feet, maybe even sometimes hogtie them. And then they would take them up on a hill or they would take them up on a building or in some way and they would push them off. And sometimes they would fall and that would break their neck because they couldn't in any way support themselves. And sometimes they would die right then. But if they didn't, then what would happen is the rest of the group would stand up on the hill or on the building or above this person. And they would each get one rock. And if you believe that she's guilty, then you get your opportunity to throw that rock 
as the person, in this case it would be this woman, lays down there beneath you. And so if you believe she's guilty and there were witnesses to say that they saw it, then you get to stand up high and you get to throw down that rock. And whether or not she lives or she dies, that's God's judgment because sometimes they live through it and are just horribly mangled and sometimes they die and they think that's in God's hands. But the thing is, you get to stand up high and you get to throw the rock down. And Jesus changed the question. It's no longer about, do you think she's guilty? You can throw this. The question for him becomes, who's not guilty? I'm going to shift this question from, do you think she's guilty, to are any of you not guilty? Who has the high ground to be able to throw this stone? Is there any of you that feel like you can stand above her and you can take a stone and you can throw this at her and condemn her to death at this point? Do any of you feel like you have the right to do that? And this is where we really get a glimpse into the heart of Christ, what he really cares about and what he's really here for because he says, listen, here's the deal. I won't draw that line the way that you want it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take this and, and draw this line that ends up condemning her. I'm not going to draw a line that leads to shame and death for her. I didn't come to be the accuser. That's what Satan does. He's the accuser. I didn't come to draw a line that separates people from God. I'm not going to do that and say she's too far away from the Lord. I didn't come to draw a line that separates sinners from religious people because in my mind you are all the same. And I certainly didn't come to draw any line that would separate me from her. He won't do it. I'm not going to answer that question. You're asking the wrong one because it doesn't have the ultimate truth in the question. The ultimate truth is not how I feel about adultery. The ultimate truth is how I feel about her and why I'm here. The ultimate truth is that I came to reconcile people back to God, not to condemn them for the things that they've done that may separate him. The most important thing for all of them to know in that group, in the way that Jesus is talking, is not how far she is from God, but instead for her to know how close she is to her Savior right there. I'm right next to you. And I won't do anything that separates me from you. And so she meets her Savior in that place of humiliation, in that place of shame. And he saves her. And then, and only then, does he talk to her about her sin. See, that's the thing is Jesus reorganizes things because what you have here is you've got doctrine, which is important. Don't hear me say it's not. But then you also have the mission of God. And what he does is Jesus says, I'm going to put them in the right order. You see, if you don't put them in the right order, then this doesn't work. Mission comes before doctrine. It has to. See, you're asking the wrong question if you start the other way. If we do doctrine first, she dies. She gets what she deserves, and she dies. And I never get the chance to save her. She would die before the cross. She would die before I suffer. She would die before I say it's finished. She would die before the resurrection. And that's not why I'm here, is for her to get what she deserves. I'm not here for any of you to get what you deserve. See, I've come to make sure you don't get what you deserve. I've come to make sure that what happens is you get saved from the things that you deserve. That is the ultimate truth 
That is the spirit and truth that Jesus is trying to make sure this whole group understands. They looked at her. They saw sin. They didn't see anything worth saving. And I wonder if when Jesus looked at her, he said, that's just another sin that I'm going to pay for, just like all the rest of them that you have. Every single one of them will be paid for. She is not sin. I will become sin so that she's saved and all the rest of you are too. Because here's the deal. If I draw the line in the sand the way that you want to say she gets what she deserves, all of you deserve death. I'll be standing over here alone. Nobody will be with me. No one will be over here who deserves life. I didn't come to draw that line. I've come to make sure that salvation comes, that reconciliation comes. That is my mission. And if I do doctrine before mission, she dies before she gets the opportunity to meet her Savior. That's really important for us. It's really important for us to remember that that's how Jesus operates because here's the deal. We sometimes, we like to draw the line in the sand. It feels comfortable to us. It's, there's clarity in it. It's black and white. We feel comfortable in going, this is wrong and this person is wrong and what they're doing is wrong, but I stand over here on this side. And I'm standing over here to go, well, that's wrong, but this is not. Lines in the sand seem to give us comfort because what it does is it allow us to do some comparison. You want, you want to know what this looks like today? What this would look like today is we find somebody and they're exposed for a mighty sin. And so what we do is we take a picture and we put it on social media and we go, here's what happened. What say you? That's why they got those little buttons for thumbs up and down. Right? You can like it. You can dislike it. You can comment. We live in a world that asks you more than anything to go, here's what's happened. Comment. Take a stance. Here's the issue. Tell us where you stand on these things. You for it, you against it. You for this person, you against this person. You ready to condemn them? You want to pick up a stone? That's the way it happens for us today. And so what will happen is people get exposed and they get put up there in some humiliating way and we look at them and we feel comfortable and going, well, that's wrong. I'm glad I'm not like that. And then people will write blogs about it and then people will write blog about the person who wrote a blog about it and then we'll comment on that. And we end up in this place where what we're doing is we're forgetting that these are people that Christ has come to die for. And that's who we are as well. Sides get taken, and boy, we sure do like for people to know where we stand. We sometimes act like the worst thing that could happen is that people don't know how strongly we disapprove of certain sin, when the actual worst thing that could happen is people don't know how much they are loved by their Savior. That's what matters. And sometimes we pick lousy places to draw lines in the sand. Sometimes when Christians attack each other over less than core issues, and by the way, I'll define core issues for you. It's the supremacy of Christ. That's a core issue. That's what matters. When believers can sometimes seem too quick and frankly take a little too much joy to point out those who don't believe and to see that they get what they deserve. We should never take joy in that. So it's not about what people deserve. We follow a Savior who talks about making sure we don't get what we deserve. We get the opposite. When we're so adamant about taking a stand against sin that we forget 
that it sometimes looked like we were against people. When we cut friends or family who are sinning out of our lives because we're afraid that to keep them in our life would make other Christians think that we approve of that behavior. And we can't have people looking at us that way. When we forget that at the center of these issues of sin and faith are people that Jesus is willing to die for. You need to know outside of what sin does to people, I don't know that Jesus cares that much about it. Because here's the thing. He cares about you. He's come to reconcile you. And what he hates is what sin does to you. Outside of that, it's not as big a deal. We forget that Jesus didn't come to show us how he feels about sin, but he came to show us how he feels about us. It wasn't your sin that drove Jesus from glory in heaven to come down here and die on the cross. It was his love for you that drove him from glory in heaven from perfect unity with Father and Holy Spirit to come down here and to make sure that you're reconciled. It's love that draws him to the cross to draw you back to your heavenly Father. But sometimes we get lost and we forget and we think that it's about drawing lines in the sand. But here's the deal. To draw a line in the sand about an issue, about a particular topic in some way, really it requires nothing of us. There's no cost. Cost no love to say, I stand over here on this issue. There's no sacrifice to go, well, this is wrong and this is right. It doesn't in any way require sacrifice on our part. You need to know the cross is for people that Jesus loves. It's for the mission that he's come to save the world and to draw them back. Obeying the law does not save you, neither does sound doctrine. Only Christ saves you. And from that will flow obedience and sound doctrine and a desire to follow Christ and to know who he is and to be near him and to do things that please him. But it's not the other way around. Mission comes first with Jesus every single time. That's why the cross had to come before the resurrection. And you need to know that ultimately Jesus' mission was not one of shame and it's not about people getting what they deserve. It's about reconciliation. That's why he came. That's what his goal is. That's the good news. Otherwise, there's no good news. Any one of us could be dragged before a group of religious people and go, here they are at their worst. Make a decision. What do they deserve? The good news is that we are all people who could be drugged there before the religious and look awful in our worst times. And what we have is a Savior who stands up and goes, I'm not going to draw a line that puts them on the other side of me. I've come for them. I won't draw that line. The line I'm going to draw in the sand, it comes in the form of a cross on a hill. That's the line that I'll draw. That's what I'm willing to die for. It's about defeating shame, and it's about reconciling us to our Creator, and that is the ultimate truth that we have. That's the ultimate spiritual truth that Jesus came to make sure that we understand. We don't carry a message of shame. We don't carry a message of uh, guilt. We don't carry a message of condemnation. We carry a message of good news. You have a Jesus that wants you. You have a Jesus that came to save you from the worst of what you've done. That's the good news that we have. There's been a lot of talk about maybe what Jesus was writing in the sand. I don't know if you've heard that. There's been all sorts of theories. 
right? Because it says two different times, Jesus bent down and he wrote in the sand. You hear everything from theories of people writing down, well, maybe he was writing down the sins of all the people that were there. I don't, I don't know what that would look like. I don't, I don't know how that would be. That maybe what he was doing was writing down the greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I, I don't know. Maybe he's writing the Ten Commandments. I want you to think about one thing in particular. The fact that he wrote it all is a big deal. The fact that Jesus bent down and began to write in the sand was a big deal. You want to know why? If you go back one chapter in chapter 7 of John, this is when the religious leaders were saying, he can't be the Messiah. He doesn't meet the qualifications. He's not the right guy. There's no way that he can be doing this and that he has any authority to do these things. As a matter of fact, in John 7, verses 14 through 16, it says, At about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews there marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This is the time where they're going, you have no authority to say these things. And Jesus is making it very clear, oh, yes, I do. And one of the things that they're doing is when they go, he doesn't even have learning. Really, the way that that's translated better would be to go, how is it that he knows his letters? How does he know his letters? How does he know how to read and write? And don't forget the people that brought the woman in are Pharisees and scribes. You know what scribes do? They write down the law. And in the midst of this, Jesus bends down. And with his own finger, in a lot the same way that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, he begins to write. You need to know this was a powerful moment. This was a moment when they stopped, and I'm sure that they looked and said, look at him writing in the ground. He knows how to write. That was a big deal. Most people didn't know how to write during that time. And not only that, but whatever he wrote, he wrote with authority to where every one of them dropped the stone and they left. This is our Messiah. He has power. He has authority. He has grace. He has mercy. He has a mission. And we're part of that mission. This is what we're supposed to do. We don't go out into the world making sure that what we're doing is pointing out that's right, that's wrong, this is right, this is wrong. We go out and we point people towards the cross towards a Savior who loves them. Do you know who Jesus is? What we can't do is risk losing them before they ever get to meet their Savior. Condemnation does not come before the meeting of Christ. They need to know Christ. We do that first. We point towards the cross. That's who we are. This is the way that we get to be like our Savior. This is the way that we model ourselves in that way. We remember mission before doctrine. That's what we get to do. If you would, stand with me for just a moment. We're going to take a little time and we're going to pray. We're going to have a couple of songs. Uh, we'll have some ministers and some elders around uh, to pray with. If you would like to pray with somebody, if you'd like to know about how you follow this Savior, about this one who's got this mission to reconcile people to, to God, if you don't know that and you would like to know, we would love to tell you about that. We'd love to tell you about how you meet your Savior. At the same time, if you've got something that's breaking your heart or you have something that you want to give praise to, man, gather around. Pray with some people around you. If you know that there's people hurting, go and pray with them. 
you have questions and anything that we can answer for you, we'll give you this opportunity too. We're going to have a couple of songs and then Art's going to close out our time of prayer with his call to prayer. Let's pray right now and start this time out. Lord God, we thank you so much for uh, your devotion to reconciling all things back under the Lordship of Christ. Lord, we're grateful that you're willing to sacrifice so much for us to belong to you. We're so grateful that you don't draw a line in the sand that puts us so far away from you that we can't come to you and we can't be reconciled and we can't be forgiven and we can't be made whole. Lord, we know that you have a mission to bring people back into a relationship with God and that we're part of that. We know that we've been given the great commission to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let us not lose our focus on that and instead draw lines in the sand that you never want us to draw. Lord, we want to be holy. We want to follow you, but we know it's you that makes us holy. It's coming in contact with our Savior that saves us. It's the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us. And so, Lord, help us to point people towards you in every way that we can. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.